Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining the DLC Drop podcast. My guest today is Richie Valdez. Richie is a friend that I've gotten to know through the skateboarding industry. In this episode, he talks through a very difficult cancer diagnosis during 2020, the year of COVID. He also shares the resourcefulness that he's gained through an experience as being a skateboarder. So a lot to learn in this episode, a guy with some very unique views and experiences. Thanks for joining us. Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC DLC Drop Drop Podcast. Podcast. Richie Valdez, my good friend, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. I just went and got some fills, and I'm just back at home right now. What's what's fills? (laughs) Fills is like, uh, it's my favorite coffee place. It's nice. a NorCal uh, place that finally came down south. I'm a NorCal guy. I went to Sacramento State, lived in San Mateo, former Central Cal, Fresno. Shout out. Now, Do you are really you want to shout out Fresno? <laughs> I mean, I'm just kidding. It's like the car theft capital of the world. You know, it's funny is like the older I've gotten and the more comfor- comfortable and confident I've gotten, I'm like, yeah, I'm from this teeny tiny town called Reedley, California, next to Fresno. Like, oh. I don't, you know, like I used to be like hiding it and stuff. But then I feel like there's something that as you become more comfortable with who you are. Yeah. Like you just let that stuff. I don't know. It's easier to be more transparent. I I think I I grew up in a pretty cool place, so I've never been too like ashamed of it or whatever. (laughs) Where'd you grow up? (laughs) I grew up in a town called Watsonville, which is like. uh, Oh, yeah. It's like the ghetto of Santa. It's like the super like Mexican hood, you know, people right. getting shot with like automatic weapons down the street. Yeah. Down in my hill. Yeah. It's pretty intense place, but I thought it was pretty cool at the same time. So take me through this. So, you know, you've had a, a career in skateboarding as a filmer. You've been a team manager. We've we've both been skateboarders our whole lives. We had opportunities to kind of work in skateboarding in a variety of different ways. But take me through that path of like, you know, being a, a skateboarder in Watsonville and going to being able to, you know, travel the world filming professional skateboarders. Yeah, it was it kind of happened for me pretty organically almost. I remember being like like my dad like wasn't a photographer or like a video guy or anything, but he kind of always put cameras in my hands. And when I was super young. I remember they have, they have this like photo that I shot of my parents when I was like eight years old, but it's like, you know, in the living room. So I, I kind of always remembered being pushed to like a kind of an artistic side versus like a more athletic side by my parents. Yeah. And so when I started skating, it like, I mean, that's when I really picked up the cameras more, you know, like my dad had a bunch of cameras and eventually like he kind of noticed that I was really into it. And so he finally bought me like for Christmas, like an editing system and camera of my own and stuff. So I remember being in high school and like not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life. I was just like skating with my friends basically and making videos with them. And I think I was like kind of interested in art history Mm -hmm. for some random reason. I I thought that that would, I actually really wanted to like restore frescoes. I thought that would have been like a really cool thing to do is like, go to like Italy or something and, you know, restore just these really awesome. I, I, I'm not a religious person, but I think like religious imagery is really cool looking. Yeah. 
I kind of thought about that and I was like, oh, I could go to like school for art history. And then my dad was like, that sounds boring. <laughs> like, yeah, you're right. And then he's like, why don't you go to film school? So what did your dad do of, out of curiosity? My family's like in the agriculture industry. Uh-huh. My grandpa was a very successful strawberry farmer. And cool. so my both my parents worked in the strawberry industry. Most of my family did. And a lot of my like cousins and a lot of people in my family like just naturally did that. So I was kind of the black sheep in a way, you know, like yeah. a lot of them didn't have to do anything. They could just work with the family. I sure. was like, my grandpa was a, you know, very wealthy. I kind of grew up in this like dichotomy of rich and poor. Like my, not, I don't want to like, I'm not talking badly about my family, but like sure. my mom's side was like a little bit, you know, less fortunate. Uh-huh. And then my dad's side was like, just kind of filthy rich, you know not my family in particular, my, my parents weren't, but like, you know, I was kind of caught in between these two worlds. Yeah. So me going to film school was like, my grandpa, like, you know, was, he just kind of didn't understand it. Mm-hmm. So I ended up going to film school and then like towards the end of film school, I ended up interning. I had two internships while there and one of them kind of like led me to get hired at Hurley clothing. Yeah. Were they owned by uh, Nike at the time or was that pre Nike? Yeah, they were, they were already owned by Nike. Okay. Uh, they, I basically had an internship at like a music video production company and the guy knew that I was super into skating and he kind of just like got me literally just got me a job, you know, like two months before graduating Sick. and uh, he kind of got my career started. You know, it's, I still think about it all the time, like how lucky I was. Cause I, I remember being at home and like sending like a cold email to this guy because I love the music videos and the bands that he was like he did like the Josie music video for Blink One Eighty Two. Oh, sick! Yeah, and he did like the Damn It one where they're in like the movie theater and he yeah, just did all these like really cool videos. And I just kind of like was under his wing for a while, you know. And he he basically did everything like to help me get on my feet post college. And his name's Darren Doan. Very very thankful for him. He came to like my graduation and stuff. And that's awesome. Super cool. So yeah. did did he have did he do anything in skateboarding or was he a skater or he just was connected to the industry and knew that you I were think, a skater? No, he was he was his dad actually was like a special effects guy in Hollywood. So he was oh, just cool. I think he grew up, you know, kind of in that world. And so he he was I don't know how I've, I've always been curious how he did it, but like he was just doing music. He did videos for like AFI. God, he did so many, but that was just kind of the like world he operated in was like you know punk band music videos and like hardcore bands and metal bands so he was like so. just super connected to all these bands and he had a production or a video production service and so he produced the music videos for a lot of the bands he was connected to yeah okay. he had a pretty good relationship with like you know bands and record labels and stuff and his stuff ruled it always looked cool and uh, yeah i forget he was like friends with someone at hurley and he basically just like uh, it's funny i like almost don't like that job isn't on my resume or anything i kind of like pushed it out of yeah i just i don't know part of me just it doesn't really speak to who i am like working for them like it was cool i guess but it was cool because i got to meet everyone that i know now kind of because of that job Mm. and stuff but i just never really i never really felt like i fit in there you know growing up in like santa cruz county with surfers and then like working for like predominantly surfboard company or surfing company i mean surf clothing company it was yeah i felt pretty out of place but but it was still really cool to like, you know, they were, they were basically like, hey, we're going to send you to Hawaii for two weeks. And I was like, oh, I'm like graduating from college in like a week. Okay, yeah, that sounds sweet. Let's go. Yeah. 
Yeah, what, so what were you exactly doing for Hurley at the time before you took off and went on to the next thing? So I was like the skate video guy there. Yeah. I was basically just like, yeah, filming like skate stuff. and. So they had a skate it. team. Do they still have a skate team? Like I remember like Bob Bernquist. Yeah, I has... used to skate with Bob. At, <laughs> I guess we go to Bob's house and film him, which was pretty wild. And with stuff. like the crazy uh, dreamland yeah. and everything. Did you see that being built or or was it already it was, built by the time you got there? It was already there. I just got to like one of the guys that worked. So there was two video guys. Like it was me and this guy, Bruno, who was Bob's brother-in-law. And yeah. Bruno is a shit. You know, that guy. Super gnarly ripper too, but like he was just, he was like Bob's right hand man, you know, still is. Yeah. So I would spend a lot of time in like Oceanside or Vista with them too. They would just hit me up and I would just drive there from LA and show up. And like I got to film a trick of Danny Ways that like never came out. Wow. Was like really Can you say crazy. what trick it was? Yeah. So was in, in like the really extremely sorry, I think video, or maybe it was really sorry. I forget. Bob Burnquist does like, he had like a goal post. Yeah, on top of the mega quarter pipe, and then I think Bob did like a bunch of tricks on it. I filmed him do a trick. I think he did front blunt, and it was like in the flip video. But uh, Danny was trying alley oop backside flip, like five zero. Oh yeah, yeah, or, yeah. I guess like a pivot yeah, grind, or like with it would be with like his back truck. Yeah. Wow. So he was trying that, and then like he was trying it for a while. We were there for a minute, and I remember just like tripping that i was like you know bob had already done the front blunt and then danny was just like dude we're like running out of light he's like i'm just gonna try switch back 5-0 and he did it like in three tries it was so crazy it was so insane to watch anytime i went to bob's house yeah well and just for the listeners to understand too like so bob burnquist is a professional skateboarder he's got this crazy dreamland he has a mega ramp which people see at the x games now and it's kind of what non-skateboarders kind of see as skateboarding it's like snowboard skateboarding if you will i think that quarter pipe is what is it 25 feet or i I forget how tall is it the dimensions it's massive dude i've been up there like standing on the edge like filming fisheye just like oh my god like i would never drop in on it it's it's that big you know it's like ungodly big so the typical yeah the typical half pipe is around 11 feet like vert ramps that people will see on the x games and stuff and the Mm -hmm. mega ramp has this huge launch a massive gap and then at the end it's got a, about a 20, 25 foot quarter pipe. And in this situation, they put a, a soccer goal, goal post, post on top yeah. to launch up, grind it, which is probably eight to Another, 10 feet in the air. Yeah. And it's basically a death wish. Like, yeah, like a lot of what's crazy. You see, I was watching Heath Kirchart's video from Stay Gold, his, his you know, the secret part. He backs at 360s, the gap. Yeah. Right. And, like that's so extremely gnarly for a street skater, but when Dude, you... the roll in is scary. Like I remember the first time I went there, I just I parked right next to like the the mega like landing, yeah, or the the quarter pipe, and I just grabbed my board, ran up the like yeah roll in and just dropped in, and ate so hard, and my back got sliced by like a piece of you know how like there's seams on the masonite the yeah light yep my back got just like dude ripped apart. And Bob was like, dude, are you crazy? What are you doing? And I skate super <laughs> loose trucks, you know? Yeah. Super loose trucks. And I had hard wheels. And I just zung out. I didn't even think about it. I just got there. And I was like, oh, this I'm just Did you start from the this. top? Or yeah. did... Oh, like, were you so going to, like, bail before the ramp? Or you're just like, let I didn't me even think go over about the it. I just, I just wanted to... I just literally... <laughs> dude, I just drove from LA 
got out of my car. I was so like juiced, you know, I was like, oh, I'm just gonna like roll in, maybe like kick turn or like come to fakie and got yeah. smoked. I was bleeding all over the place. And I remember I like ran to my car and I had like hand sanitizer and I just put like a big old glob of hand sanitizer on my back and then like or on my hand and then like rubbed it on my back because it was like covered in like soot. Like I remember putting oh, my hand dang, on my back yeah. and it was like like my whole hand was like black and like red from the blood. And then Bob like goes and he cuts like a piece of aloe from like he had just aloe, you of know, course. growing. He's like, here, dude, like just rub this on there, like bandage it up, you know. <laughs> the what I've heard, because you're going about 45 miles an hour, I think those dudes, like 40-ish. Yeah. When they're going down that. Sure. And I've heard that they cover every piece of skin because if skin just even touches the ramp, it just disappears. Yeah. So that's what happened to me, dude. Just <laughs> yikes. It sucked, but I mean. I learned my lesson after that. I was, I was like still hurt and stuff, but I was like, okay, I'm going to drop in from halfway because my trucks are loose. And then I was doing like full cabs and stuff on like the, you know, the lower part of the, yeah, the like quarter pipe and stuff. But yeah, it's definitely not something to like mess with. I couldn't imagine bailing like the, you know, trying to like as a yeah. street skater bail, like Keith Kirchart, you know, not really. Well, so you, so you're with Hurley, you had an opportunity to, to film with Bob and Danny way. So did that, move you deeper into the skateboard industry or what was that next step? Yeah. I mean, it kind of like, so when I was there, I, I was skating a lot with David Loy. Yep. He was just always down to go out and uh, I would just like stay at his house for like a week or two at a time. You know, I was was like, okay, cool. Like you live in orange County. I'm in LA. I don't want to keep driving. I was doing that a lot where I'd be driving, like, you know, driving home after skating and then coming back in the morning and then, driving to Riverside and then going back to Orange County to drop them off and then going to LA. So I was just like, dude, I'm just going to like try to stay here. And his parents were so cool. Yeah. His parents did a lot for a lot of people. They took care of so many people. And so I did that. I kind of like, because of David, I met like pretty much most of the, like I I live with Sean Hale and uh, I met Sean through David. I met Ryan Reyes through David. A lot of people that, you know, didn't skate for Hurley at the time I met through David. Riley Hawk was like, one of the original people that I was skating with when he was like a little kid still. And well, and David Lewis skated for Birdhouse, right? As like does, a yeah. pretty young kid. Mm-hmm. And he was like Tony Hawk's favorite. Like it kind of felt like because he was like yeah. a kid who could like huck and skate big rails, but could also skate transition. Yeah. So you met did you have any did you have any run-ins with Tony Hawk through that? I have an interesting Riley Hawk story for you. Yeah. I mean, I've just kind of seen Tony like here and there throughout the years when he was young i think i would mainly drop him off with his mom yeah but yeah tony's been super cool i mean i don't like know tony very well but i th- we just kind of like i think we both he knows like what i did i guess sure back then and he knows I've, I've always like i went on king of the road with birdhouse you know i've always been oh my gosh birdhouse to me has always been like i'm forever i never worked for them but okay. i've always been super grateful they, they've done a lot for me too you know not to i wouldn't say like tony in particular but like birdhouse in general you know has been a pretty like big thing in my life you know yeah it seems like a number of the skater like you've just been close and filmed a lot of the pros right like what is david like ben nor ben ray but yeah i'm just super my my good friend is the team manager of birdhouse okay i mean it's just you know like i filmed a lot of sean's part for the last video they put out and it was like a video with him and clive and reese salkin i Um, forgot dude that you and didn't you guys win when you did king of the road 
So you yeah. won King of the Road. Do you did you get anything from that? Like, do you get like yeah, a trophy? I got, like, a trophy or? with my name on it. Sick. Which is it's like the only trophy I have. <laughs> All right, so people who don't know, so Thrasher King of the Road, it's 10 Days of Mayhem put on by Thrasher Magazine. And essentially, they've got a book. And it's all of these, it's all of these challenges that some are skateboarding involved, some are not skateboarding involved. And correct me if I'm wrong, Richie, but you've got multiple teams in multiple cities, and then they all come together at the end. And they're whoever checks off the most of the too. tricks. Okay, you, you meet up in the middle. Or the like five day mark, you know, and then the ten day mark too. Yeah. So, like, I definitely like, geez, King of the Road. I remember Jamie Thomas from Zero Skateboards. They won like three in a row or something like yeah. that. Birdhouse did too. <laughs> they did too, three in a row. Yeah, they're the only ones. Yeah. So, what is that contest like? Like being in the van and and like just, it seems like the gnarliest thing in skateboarding to be a part of. Like, yeah. I think a lot of teams like stopped doing it, right? Because it was like this is. I don't think people really stop. They would just change that. It would go like, it would go like board spot or board companies would do it. And then shoot okay. companies would do it. Like they would switch up, you know, the types of teams that could go. Yeah. But yeah, it was heinous. It was a good time, but it was, you could tell like around four or five days in, like people were just, dude, you're like skating, not, you know, I didn't have to skate, but uh, they're pushing themselves as hard as they can, like every single day. So like right. halfway through, like they were, the spirits were like, because the way you look at it too, like you don't, you never know exactly like what the other teams are doing. Mm. So you have to assume that you're kind of in last place at all times. I have friends like That's I had a good point. Kyle Walker and like Zach Wallen were homies of mine that were on the other teams, you know, and I would like text them here and there from the van, but it was just, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty grueling, dude. And then for like me and the team manager, my buddy, Adam Mills, like we would have to stay up, you know, we'd sometimes we'd get to like a hotel or something and then we'd have to stay up like hours organizing all the footage because the, the footage needed to be organized in a certain way to like, basically when they announce the winner, they need to see everything that was done mm -hmm. quickly to know like, okay, these guys actually got all these points. Like here's the proof, you know? Right. And uh, people lost clips. You know, there was like points that would get lost because the filmers either like didn't capture it or there's a million things that could go wrong. So it was it was pretty crazy for us because, you know, as the filmers, like we had to stay up a little later than when everyone else got to relax. We were like, all right, like, here's my footage. Back it up. Here's the timeline that we need to put it in with like the titles and all that stuff. Right. So it was it was cool to go and win for sure. And I don't think I would want to go again, though. You know? That was my next question. Yeah, I don't think I need to do that again. <laughs> Would you have gone if you knew how gnarly it was? I kind of feel like I knew. Yeah. I definitely knew what I was signing up for. I worked at, I worked at Street League at the time, too. And I, that was my vacation. I, used, <laughs> I saved up all my vacation time and used it for that. And then I came literally like I came back and I went straight to work like the next day. It Jeez. was pretty fucked. It was like, yeah, it was pretty wild. <laughs> That's insane. But, so, yeah, no days off for that one. Yeah, and Street League is where you and I met. We got to say skate some of those courses together, which was a lot of fun. The oh, funny yeah, that was like the best part of the trips. Yeah, <laughs> pretty the, much. The funny dynamic about skating a Street League course, which is it's one of my favorite memories of all time, is being able to skate some of those courses. But is it's pretty gnarly because it, they're obstacles built for pros. Yeah, and you want to do a trick you're proud of. But you also don't want to be the dude who looks like he's trying to, 
like be the man because the 20 yeah. best skateboarders in the world are about to come shut this course down and you also don't want to like face plant in front of Rob Deerdick when he's hanging out on the sidelines that was my experience anyway I was like I'm trying to get one thing that like maybe I could throw on the gram and like I'm proud of yeah but you're definitely not hucking because it's like you're gonna look I like was. an idiot were you <laughs> well yeah I mean I would I would always I mean, we had to be there early anyways, you know? So, like, yeah. I would always get there earlier, I think, and try to skate for, like, an hour or... Which, you know, was, like, 8 in the morning, trying to, like, get motivated to, like, skate for an hour before, like, working a 12, 13-hour day, 15-hour day, you know? Right. And then I would skate after, too. I would always, like, skate before and after. That was, like, the only thing mm. that I... do. that that was a weird thing for me to be a part of, I think, because it was such, like, a skewed like way of viewing skateboarding and like right. i didn't grow up you know skating contests or like really doing anything like that or like caring about contests and then i don't know, think any like, of us did i i think it yeah. like i think it gained some momentum like i th here's my thing with this is what i my theory with skateboarding contests is i think that skaters who don't make hardly any money compared to traditional sports athletes see it as this is a way to make some money yeah and it's i don't know the last place got like seven g's or something you could go there and just bail every trick and like right like, oh i could still make like 30 40 thousand dollars a year just like going and being last you know like and if you try it a little bit you can make even more yeah so. and i think x games you're you're making 10 grand maybe 20 grand at least uh back then and then street league came in and essentially some background for the audience is rob Dyrdek, i think wanted to legitimize skate contests as much as he could mm -hmm. and so it was like let's have this thing where it's it's <laughs> like you're skating a street plaza something that is much more street oriented as far as obstacle goes and then the winner won 150 grand starting with like the first contest and i think they've lowered those prize pools I thought, over I thought time it was a hundred grand but i could be wrong i don't even oh, I feel like i should know but like i also don't really care it was just nigel winning like you know right i don't think i paid attention to the how much money he was making but yeah i thought it was a hundred grand maybe it was 150. so my question for you is you kind of like have experience like in skateboarding being a filmer for like both sides of the like you're going on King of the Road, and then you're also, you know, Street League was it probably as commercialized as you could get, right? Oh, because yeah, it's on time. ESPN and all that. What was that difference between like, hey, we're with the homies in the streets and in the van to this it is going to be on? It was okay. literally an office. Something like, I don't know. I mean, skate skate culture is just the skate industry. It's so the opposite of like your nine to five or your typical office job that I think sometimes it's a lesson for industries something maybe covid taught us a little bit as far as like dude like like lean into the culture of like the industry you're in like yeah work needs to get done but open your eyes beyond like i i don't know i I, I think maybe if they opened maybe if somebody like street league or somebody who's like commercializing you know a core industry a subculture a counterculture you're gonna get better talent because they want to work there you know, or you're saying you're given the freedom to work within the the way that you're going to do your best work. What? Yeah, do you agree I, with I that kind or? of I kind of trip on uh, creatives. I hate using that term, but I'm not I'm not saying I'm a creative, but I 
I don't understand how people who like work at say an agency that does like I don't know some kind of fucking marketing or some for sure. like a client like imagine being like a creative person and then having to do creative stuff when it's not it's not there when you're not feeling it or like to just oh, force to, it like, right I have to make something I have to come up with something for this client that sucks that I don't care about <laughs> and I have no attachment to and you have to like put your energy into it and then being in an office is like the most uncreative like setting I could ever think of yeah and I think it's like that's where people are forced to get into jobs right and it's it's the type of thing where it's like I got to make a living this is kind of how society has set it up for me where you know this is it's very rare I think that people break out of the mold or they do something for for the first time and I think this is something that like that you've pursued a little bit with I want to talk about your documentaries and kind of what you're doing there and why you're doing it because and we'll link to them in the podcast too but I want to I don't know like what's cool about the documentaries that you do is they're so well done so thank you but also they're highlighting a number of people who are very unique they're all doing their own thing and yeah. your goal we we're talking the other day about this is like it's not to create a video production company where you can then generate revenue <laughs> it's yeah, for you to I'm use losing your... money making this <laughs> <laughs> it's for you to use your skills to highlight people that you're stoked on right and then you know of course you know there's hopes or potential opportunity to you know work with those people more in the future because you've added value to them but i'm really interested to hear kind of straight from you like what is the thought behind these documentaries what are some of them that you've done and like and you know share a little bit about jamie thomas hitting you up you know like yeah he just texted me a second ago (laughs) sick yeah yeah jamie wanted some stuff like broken out from the piece so yeah (laughs) i always trip out when i get a text from jamie or like a dm yeah Uh, yeah kind of like i've wanted to do this stuff for years Uh and i kind of I, i think i was inspired by this video i saw on this guy jacob bannon he's the singer of this band called converge yeah and i saw a piece that was made on him kind of about his art he does a lot of really he's a singer of a band he owns a record label but he does a lot of art for like other bands and his stuff looks really cool seems like a douchebag but his art is amazing so i watched this video like on him that was you know documentary style and i just i loved what he had to say i'm still i'm a huge fan of him and i remember when i saw that i was like oh like that was so cool. Like this is someone I've like looked up to since I was a little kid. And I got, I felt like I got to learn a little bit more, you know, about him and what he does like outside of the music. And I remember like thinking that that was something I would wanted to do, but I didn't really have like a means to do it with like revenue. Like, Mm. okay, who's going to pay me to do this? You know? So like, I kind of like never, I always had so much stuff going on that I never really like thought about actually doing it. And so last year, Obviously, like I think we were all forced to have a little forced to have a little more free time than normal. Yeah. And so I guess this ties into my health issue. Here we go. So yeah. Yeah. So like on the day like of the the day that the country was like and had announced that we were gonna like be on a quarantine lockdown, like the country was like shutting down. I was diagnosed with cancer. Wow. Which is pretty like yeah, I hate like I kind of told you I didn't really want to talk about it, but I feel like it's almost necessary for the documentaries to kind of come to light. Yeah. But so, yeah, I was diagnosed with cancer on the 17th of March, which is coming up pretty soon on a year. 
And when that happened, I had, I, I feel like I knew that I had cancer. And so mm. I was, things with coronavirus were already picking up and I couldn't get in to see a doctor. Wow. People were pushing me out months in advance, like, oh, like we can see you, you know, like June or something. And I'm like, it's, it's like February, you know? Yeah. And so Jeez. I eventually like was like, okay, you know what? No one wants to see me. I'm just going to go get a physical and try to like force my way into like, you know, something rather than like trying to see specialists. I was like, I'm just going to go see a, a general practitioner. And I, I, I felt like I knew I had it, but you know, I was losing sleep for like a month, you know, waiting because you just couldn't, I couldn't really like stop thinking about it. And so when I went in, the guy like needed all these tests done and I, I couldn't get the test done because people were turning me away because of the pandemic. Right. And so eventually he like basically just forced these people to see me, which I'm so grateful for, for him. But like, I also had to go to places and just sit there. Like I had to get like a ultrasound wow. and they didn't want to see me. And he was like, I need you to just go over there tomorrow morning. Cause they're, they're refusing to see you today. And I had to show up at like seven in the morning and sit there. And he was like, don't leave until they see you. He's like, you're not leaving. You know, wow. like, sit there and like, tell them like, you know, if there's any openings, like you're there. And so like, I had to do that for a few things. And I remember sitting at home talking to my friend Yaki. He's like the pro on Baker now. Yeah. Popo, uh-huh. I was like FaceTiming with him and I, with my roommate on his phone and I got like a call and it was like, Hey, can we have you come in? The doctor wants to talk to you about your results. And I was like, Oh, mm. like, that's not good. Yeah. And I was like driving over there and I called my parents and I was like, Hey guys, like I, I think I have cancer. And they're like, what? I was like, yeah, like I've kind of been hiding this from you. And they were just like, no, everything's fine. And I was like, I don't think it's fine. And then, you know, I went in and the doctor was like, came in and told me I had it. And mm. I was just like, all right, like, you know, what do we got to do? And he was like, I could like see him like tearing up t- telling me. And I was just like, yeah, like, <laughs> what's up? What do we have to do? He's yeah. Like, I'm so glad you're taking it like this. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I have grown, you know, men like in here throwing things and like, breaking out crying and like screaming when I tell them this kind of news yeah it's always hard every time and I just was like I was I told him I was like I'm just glad to know what it is now Mm -hmm. it was almost like I like a weight was lifted I was like okay I don't have to think about this anymore at night or like think about it at all I was like I know I have it like it's just time to deal with it yeah I got testicular cancer by the way so so he's basically like you know we gotta like figure this out he's like I need you to go see the specialist right now Mm-hmm. And then that was the seventh. That was the eighteenth. And then on the twentieth, I was like getting surgery. You know, wow, to get that thing removed. And my parents were, you know, up north, and I had to like deal with the whole thing by myself. Essentially, my roommates, wow. you know, took care of me, helped me out as much as I could. But that was pretty rough, you know. And uh, that was the recovery. Was when I kind of told myself I was going to start making these documentaries. Mm. I was like, popped up on, dude six or eight pills a day i forget they gave me some like when i was in when i was getting into surgery they're like hey like we're gonna prescribe you these pain meds and i was like i don't really like like pills you know and they're like you're, you're gonna right. want to take them they're like just just take them you know and yep. so i started taking these like pain meds you know like couldn't eat for five days i had no appetite they, I, I every single side effect i i got basically jeez, mm, like, insomnia itching nausea like there was all these things i was like i'm feeling all of these wow. so i couldn't sleep i was in pain like the sixth day 
I was the sixth day, I was like, okay, you know what? No, the seventh, after a week, I was like, I don't want to take these pills anymore because I couldn't even, I can barely drink water. I, I couldn't eat anything. My roommate would bring me stuff and like force me to like drink a smoothie or something, you know? Yeah. And uh, eventually it was just like, okay, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to just wake up tomorrow and not take these pills because dude, it, it was so weird being like high on opiates too. I'm you know? sure. I just didn't like it. Yeah. I didn't like it at all. And so the seventh day I woke up, seventh day, how biblical I woke up and I didn't, take like the the pills i'm supposed to take them like right when i wake up and i didn't do it so i was like okay i'm gonna see like how much pain is being like hidden masked by you know whatever sure. pills yeah so over the course of the day i started feeling the pain more i was just like oh this sucks but every hour i had to get up and walk for a couple minutes because they didn't want the the incision i have a massive scar now and they yeah. didn't want it to clot so I had to like get up every hour and like just inch, you know, around the apartment. Like Yikes. every step hurt so bad, even with the pills, they hurt. So then I had to like deal with that that day. And I was like, oh, dude, this is so jacked, like so jacked up. So come like, you know, nighttime, almost all the pain is set in because, you know, the pills from the day before weren't there. And I started having like these irrational thoughts and I just really wanted to be with my parents. I really wanted to be with my mom and my grandma. And yeah. I was just laying in bed, just like, I don't want to be here. Like, this is so lame. And then they like, by two, I was having like suicidal thoughts. Wow. And I was like, whoa, this is, it's been a week on these opioids. Like, I can't believe that I'm feeling this way. <laughs> you know, like I was literally just like, I don't even want to deal with this anymore. You know, I don't want right. to, like, it was so, your brain just turns to mush, dude. and. After that, I was, I think I dealt with like the weird suicidal thoughts and I just kind of missed my parents. You know, it's like you have this weird thing where your body like betrays you and it could have potentially killed me if, you know, I didn't take care of it sooner because sure. it spreads from like your testicles to your lymph nodes, to your lungs, to your brain. That's like, wow. it just shoots right up, you know? So I kind of like was just really sad. Uh, mm -hmm. I was in pain and just wanted to, you know, I felt like a little kid. I just wanted to like be held by my, my mom. Right. And I really missed my, I always miss my grandma. And I just like had so many weird thoughts going through my brain. I just was thinking about her being alone at home. And I'm like, dude, I'm alone right now. Like I want to be with her. And so the next morning I woke up and that's when I was like, my roommate, Sean has been, and I stopped taking the pills after that night too. I was like, I'm not dealing with this withdrawal ever again. I dealt with the pain instead of like taking the pills, you know? Yeah. Cause I had that night and I was like, I don't want to do this again in like another week. Cause yeah. I had two weeks worth of pills. And so my roommate, Sean has been developing this shoe that's supposed to like, it stretches out the arch of your foot. Uh -huh. And I kind of was just like, okay, I wanted, I thought about the documentaries in that like, week period i was like okay i think i want to do this because i know i'm gonna have free time mm -hmm. and i kind of like threw out the idea to my roommate sean i was like hey can i like do a video piece with you and like you can talk about the shoes because sean had been developing the shoe and like his stuff was supposed to come out already but because of corona like there was delays yeah and so he was like dude i don't know what to do i have people who already pre-ordered and i was like well let's do this video and i was like it doesn't have to be like on doesn't have to be like a branded thing we can just like do something that is about you but like you focus on the shoe uh -huh. and so he used that video piece that i made with him as like something to send like to his you know the people who are interested in buying the shoe or uh -huh. signed up for like the mailing list and i had so much fun doing that 
and I mean, I was doing it with my roommate, you know, super easy, but that I was like, okay, like I can do this. You know, that led to me wanting to do more of them essentially. Now, during this time when you, when you decided to do that, was this, did you have the thought of like, if if I don't have much time left, I want to do that now? Or Uh, was it a completely different thought? No, I, the doctor, there was like two types of the cancer. There was Uh like, one that was like a lot more sketchy yeah and then there's one that's like it's like one type of cell but like i forget the name of the the like i don't remember the type of cell that like gets created in like the the cancer phase but i had the like safer kind where it's like okay like i still had to wait like a month or something to find out if i needed chemotherapy and all that stuff like radiation and so you know once i found out that i didn't have the I knew that I didn't have the like really bad one. I knew everything was going to be fine. I guess you know. Yeah. What were but, some of the things beyond that documentary? What were some things? I know we've talked about music playlists. What were some things that really helped you get through that time when you're dealing with? Oh my gosh! I mean, a lot of people just dealing with COVID had a crazy time without cancer. On top of that, you know, from like almost January up until March, like you knew something was going on and like people were just, no one really had an idea of what was happening yet at that point, you know, like it was still so new. And so I felt like the world was caving in, like the, the, the whole world was caving in, but then like my world was caving in too, you know? And that was like pretty, just, it was kind of like the best time and the worst time to get it because nothing was, nothing was really going on. You know, I didn't have, there was no FOMOing into like, like, oh, like people are out having the best time of their lives. It's like, no, everyone's pretty miserable. I'm just a little bit more miserable for a little bit, you know? <laughs> sure. And I kind of treated it, I feel like I treated it like a rolled ankle, you know? It's like, okay, dude, whatever. Like, I'm going to just deal with this and move on. And I kind of like still treat it like that now to this day. I mean, I have like checkups, like these pretty like costly checkups I have every quarter. Yeah. But I've, I've kind of treated it like I didn't really like let it, I didn't, you know, I don't consider myself like a cancer survivor or like some weird. I just do just another injury. It's like rolling an ankle, you know? Yeah. Got this thing. I dealt with it. I'm moving on and stuff. So like my whole life was like kind of all it was, was like skating. Like I worked in it. I did it for fun. I did it not for fun when I just, you know, like I would just end up going out on missions because it's all around me. Right. And a part of me felt like it wasn't the thing that it's like the childhood part of it was not there anymore. You know, like it became a job. It became a job like early on in my life, but I just, it was hard. I felt guilty sometimes going out skating with my friends versus mm. like going out and filming someone that I should be filming. Yeah. You know, and that it, it was very subtle. It wasn't like in my face, but I knew that there was something there that was like, oh, man, like this, you know, this is kind of a, position to be in like the thing that you have as a you know the passion in your life and it goes for probably musicians or anyone that does something like that they enjoy doing and then also gets like a they start making money doing it and then it and then you have to do it when you wouldn't do it when you were just doing it for fun or the way that you do it and i've i've thought about that a lot as a pro skater i've never been a pro but i've thought you know i got close enough that i could kind of see what that might be like and I've always thought about like, man, standing on the top of that 20 stair, looking at that rail, knowing you got to do something nobody's ever done on it. 
sounds rough. Yeah, some people handle it a lot better than others. I've I've been I've just watched people, you know, kind of come and go. It's the skateboarding industry is pretty lame, honestly. Like I think about like companies that have like, you know, a warehouse and it's like, oh, like your guys in the warehouse are better protected and better paid than like your team, you know? Right. And they're disposable. Good point. I've seen friends blow out their ACLs. I've, I've seen friends have, you know, these like injuries where they just get kicked to the curb. And I always think about that where it's like, the guy packing the boxes for that company is better mm. protected and better paid than the dude who's out there destroying himself for a couple hundred bucks a month. And that, uh, I just can say, it always it always struck a weird chord in me. You know, I didn't like that. One of the most sobering moments, like looking at the skateboard industry, is you look at a skate mag from five years ago, and it's filled with people who you haven't heard from in four years. And they're they were thick as hell back then too. Good point. And there were more than one. <laughs> yeah. Like Thrasher is kind of the only thing in print still, I think. Yeah. There might be one other. Who knows how long that's going to go. I have like a weird, it's so funny too. Like, you know, the filmer has been taking advantage of and stuff. I think that's, I think creatives, if you want to call them that, designers, filmers, etc. It's super easy to be taken advantage of and it's really hard to monetize. You know, like yeah. business and creative is, kind of opposites and you you know a lot of times people don't understand their value they don't understand what other people are getting paid for their work and there's a lot of hey the right people are going to see this right yeah and you've got you know business people who have all the leverage at times because it doesn't matter if they don't get that video as much as that videographer doing something with the all the work you just put into it mm-hmm. and not having that experience to say, no, this is X amount of dollars. And, you know, and, and also, I don't know, putting together in a certain type of a package or a way that's going to, to monetize creativity is a challenge. Dude. Yeah. I, I, I don't really, I don't consider myself like a creative. I know I do things that could kind of like be put, I mean, I used to, hate titles i was just telling you before this like i don't like when someone's like oh i'm a videographer i'm a cinematographer i'm a director and i'm a still photographer too it's like can you do any of those things actually like sure you know what i mean so i know that i do like a lot of things i don't like putting titles on myself and i don't think now that i've been interviewing for jobs i don't think I, i like sell myself you know sometimes on like what i'm capable of i think people look at like resume my resume has like you know, five or six, whatever jobs that are all kind of different. Sure. Like I worked at a photo agency. I worked at, you know, this live events thing I did. I worked at a television production company for two years two, or almost three years, maybe more. I forget. But, you know, I have all these like different things and it's like I'm applying for jobs. And it's like I lately I've been applying for creative project management jobs, mm-hmm. which I just I've never done it, but I feel like it's something I could do. And then it's funny, like talking to these people and it's like, oh, you don't know this like creative project project management software. Like, yeah, you're not the right person or something because of one little thing like that where it's like, yeah. okay, I taught myself to sidechains, kick, kick drums to synths and like engineer like the sounds to not like have phase cancellation. And uh-huh. it's like, 
I taught myself to make music, so I can't learn, you know, some piece of software. <laughs> That's like, I'm not afraid of software. <laughs> right. I think the, I think being a resourceful person, you know, it's like, do you know how to use the program or do you know how to think critically and to figure out how to get the job done, especially when it can't be done in the ways that conventionally um, that are conventional. Exactly. Yeah. That's the thing too, that I think like skating, being a skateboarder and like being forced to deal with like failure on a daily basis and physical pain. Right. I think a lot of skaters can do a lot more than just skating. It's like, dude, any, anything I've ever done work related is like a fraction as hard as like, tricks that i've had to do which goes for any other skater too you know like think about how hard it is to like just comfortably push down the street right think about that right it's hard it's not easy yeah think about getting yourself to jump on that handrail for the first time and then think about trying some sort of new discipline or some sort of new role and it's like hey no matter what happens i'm gonna walk away (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly when i gotta flip in yeah i gotta flip into this rail and the only way i can do it is to fully commit and who knows what's going to happen i mean you and i have done that for years and years and years and so by comparison everything else seems a lot easier i think everything is so much easier dude and that's why i've like with jobs mainly too like i even like when i got hired at the photo agency as a i was a retoucher Mm -hmm. mainly doing like advertisements for like you know the freeways i was yeah you know compositing these images for like i would spend like a month sometimes on like one car advertisement you know yeah crazy projects and stuff but like i had never done that before i got hired there i had like my retouching test and you know i had taken photo classes all my electives at college were like usually photo electives and i had like a retouching class and what I learned there was not what I ended up using skill set, skill uh, set wise at the job. So I was like, okay, like, sure. like I think I know how to do this, but you know, professional level industry standard photo retouching is like its own thing. So right. I remember taking the retouching test, and what they were looking for was that you knew what, to, like, you had an idea of what needed to look right or what didn't look right or what to like fix up. Sure. Not the technical. My technical was. <laughs> you know? and i can yeah. every every agency probably runs their pro- program a little bit different so right you know with that job that was like when i realized like oh dude i could probably pick up anything if i really wanted because i definitely like that job to me got old when i stopped learning once i got to the point mm-hmm. where it's like okay like everything we're doing is now formulaic that's when i was like you know i should probably move on <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. but i you know i got hired based on the eye that you know I had for the detail, right? Not the technical. I mean, I think anyone can learn technical stuff. I think like being like uh, being someone who is good at learning is its own discipline. Hundred percent. Yeah. The you know the ability to think, not just what you know, but the ability to learn it. And I think skateboarding helps with that. I think you know if you can master critical thinking and resourcefulness, there's not much that's going to stop you. And we, you know, we're about to the end of this podcast here, but I want to give you an opportunity as well to, if there's any final things in that vein that you'd love to share, I think our audience is going to get a lot out of it. Oh man. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like we, you know, for me, obviously like 
life was kind of thrown for a loop last year. But I think we should all look at what was dealt to us. And I don't, I'm not a religious person. Or for me, like, and what we're still dealing with was like the world or like the universe telling us, like, hey, dude, like, you guys need to, you guys need to take a really good look at what things are like and maybe reassess them, you know, cryptocurrency people working not in office settings, people just kind of like taking a, taking a step back and like maybe, re, you know, like I said, reassessing their environments and like what they do and what they don't want to do and what they do want to do. And then, you know, so many people have like been forced to become like a hustler in a way to get, to get by. Yeah. And I feel like I've always kind of been, and a lot of my friends, we've always been hustling. It's not anything new to us, you know? I think that's something that like maybe we should try to really take for face value is like, Hey dude, we got put into this situation because maybe we needed to be put in our place by whatever it is that saw that, you know, that we were right. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but you know, like, yeah, I think, you know, there's a perspective shift there that like everything that you thought you could count on and the, you know, everything that you thought would always be there when it's not there, what do you do? And I think it's also really strong to say, or to realize, I should say, is I can do a lot more when I have to do it. You know, and when you're forced, necessity is the mother invention. And when you have a necessity to figure out how am I going to pay rent tomorrow, or how am I going to deal with this illness that I've just been diagnosed with, what you didn't think you could do, once you have to do it, you realize you have the strength and the courage and the means to get through it. Yeah, we're very resilient people you know and i mean the humans in general are like we always find we always find a way absolutely and whatever it is like if something something happens like we always kind of like whether it's changing something small or just like looking at something differently or developing something new to fix whatever is broken like we've kind of made it pretty far (laughs) you know absolutely we're gonna make it past this obviously too you know and hopefully be better off in the long run. So, No, I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to once things open up a little bit more, getting to go skate with you again out in LA. So hopefully sooner than later. But man, thank you for say, sharing your story and you know sharing your thoughts to our audience. This has been another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast with Richie Valdez. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop Podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Futuri Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review.